broadcasting live from the phx.fm studio in phoenix arizona it's time for valley business radio spotlighting the valley's best businesses and the people who lead them Hello and welcome to Valley Business Radio, where we tell stories the traditional media tends to ignore and help connect you to the right people. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian McIntyre. I'm joined in the studio today by three very interesting folks from our nonprofit sector. We're going to talk about the economics of higher purpose, what it is to have a charitable heart, to create a purpose-driven life, and to contribute to the community, doing good work while doing well by others. With me here is Gail Baer from Jewish Family and Children's Services. Welcome, Gail. Thank you. Andrea Klaus from Bivens and Associates. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you. And Jerry Royce from Esperanza. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you as well. We had a whole segment on Esperanza and the important work that you're doing earlier this year. So I'm interested to hear a little bit of an update as well as uh, some things about our topic today. Why don't we start off by having each of you introduce us to your organizations, the kind of work you do, the kind of folks you serve. Jerry? Yeah, so I'm Jerry Royce, uh, CEO and, and president of Esperanza. We are a global health organization and we pr- improve health uh, by providing hope uh, through disease prevention, education, and treatment for every life we touch. We work both internationally and domestically right here in Phoenix. And this is one of the things I'm fascinated by about your organization. It started with the international uh, missions. Yes. And then really took on in a very significant and serious way uh, issues here in the Valley, which you've also been doing uh, for a long time. Can you describe just briefly some of the types of programs, types of services that you're providing? Yes. So in in the Valley, uh, it was 20 years ago, actually, we there was some research done on the worst or poorest zip codes to live in. And so our board decided to pick those zip codes and focus our work on the Hispanic uh, monolingual, uh, all Spanish speaking community. So all of our work is education, resource providing is all done in Spanish by our community health workers uh, and educators who come from the community. We go where the community is. So we go to Title I schools, to community centers, churches, uh, senior HUD housing, and we do disease prevention education, nutrition education, and oral health. Gail Baer, you're the Vice President of Philanthropic Services for Jewish Family and Children's Service. We've also had folks from JFCS on our show uh, for more in-depth discussion earlier this year. Can you give our listeners an overview of Jewish Family and Children's Service and what kinds of work, what kinds of programs you provide? Sure. Uh, JFCS provides behavioral health, health care, and social services to all ages, faiths, and backgrounds here in Maricopa County. Uh, those services range, really, we say, from like from birth to forever. Uh, so we care for about uh, 50% of the youth in the state's foster care system who may receive a variety of behavioral health, health care, and other program services at JFCS. We also have uh, certain services for older adults uh, in the senior community. Um, that it, Those involve socialization and creative programming. And in addition, we also have a segment of special services specifically for the Jewish community, as that's how our organization was founded. Absolutely. And also some uh, an organization that has served the Valley for a long time. Right. How long have you been with JFCS? So I've been with JFCS. It's coming up on four years, uh, but the organization has been around since 1935. So we have a long history here in Phoenix. 
Fabulous. We'll learn more about some of these details as we get into the meat of the discussion. Andrea Klaus, you're an attorney with Bivens and Associates, an Arizona law firm that specializes in serving some of the same populations as these nonprofits. Could you give us an overview of your firm and, and its work? Absolutely. So do we do traditional estate planning, probate and trust administration? Uh, do we also uh, serve the special needs community, do a lot of special needs planning, uh, do a lot of work with elder care, so getting folks qualified for government benefits, uh, working through issues of incapacity, um, and then uh, helping families through post-death issues as well. And this is certainly something that here in Arizona with with a large population of of, uh, aging folks who many of whom are from here, but many of whom also move here to retire, enjoy the the nice uh, quality of life, uh, the weather, uh, et cetera, certainly an important segment of our population. What are some of the key issues that your firm sees? You mentioned some of them, incapacity and things of that nature, but certainly this is a, a population that um, it deserves special attention, both the elderly and the special needs folks in a variety of different ways. What are some of the key themes that keep recurring in your work? What are you seeing out there? Uh, Poor planning or no planning at all, frankly. Um, And when that occurs with uh, a special needs population in particular, uh, there can be a disqualification of certain benefits if uh, the, the special needs party doesn't receive them in the proper manner. Uh, When we're talking about uh, the elderly population, a lack of planning there uh, winds up leading to um, guardianships, conservatorships, and things of that nature. Uh, We do a lot of work with uh, qualifying folks for Altex, which is Arizona's version of Medicaid. That's Arizona's long-term care system. Uh, Working with people to preserve assets um, uh, from long-term care spend down. Now, one of the issues that comes up over and over again sometimes with regard to this is the, I would say, preconceived ideas. I was about to say prejudice, and that's probably also an appropriate word, about either special needs uh, communities or about uh, aging communities or about the other side of this. There's the assumption that estate planning, for example, is only the only for the ultra wealthy. That how much of your work are you finding trying to navigate some of the pre-existing ideas out there that may even be keeping some of your clients from knowing about things they need to act on? I'll I'll start by as far as preconceived notions go. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, or whether you've heard a rumor, but attorneys aren't well liked uh, as a general rule. Which is why I tell my dad to please stop introducing me as one when he's when he's I'm meeting new folks. Um, the there are lots of myths that go along with estate planning that it's for the ultra wealthy is definitely one of them. The opposite is actually true. If somebody comes in, if we're talking about an aging population, while they've still got capacity and gets something in place, a solid set of powers of attorney. Um, you can avoid a guardianship or conservatorship. Now, I'm happy when I'm in court. I'm getting paid. I went to school for it. Uh, but it, it's expensive to have me standing next to you. A, a little bit of pre-planning goes a whole heck of a, a, a long way. You, you can avoid paying an attorney to go to court to do things if you've got a good solid set of documents in place to begin with. Now, one of the things that we want to talk about today is as we approach this year-end 
kind of moment when there's a lot on everybody's minds. Uh, family around the holidays, some of that's positive, some of it's negative. Uh, the pressures um, to provide, uh, sometimes at the most basic level. Um, you know, I listened to an interesting interview uh, with the director of Arizona's food banks on the, the way in which the food banks, the network throughout the state are serving underserved populations on a daily basis, but particularly with intensity around the holidays, um, all the way through to, to folks who are trying to maximize their you know, financial and tax uh, results for the year. They're looking for ways in the last quarter and even in the last month to try to you know, make certain decisions about what to do with their assets, with their, with their money and things of that nature. So let's talk more generally about this, but I'm, I'm curious to know because we could really get into the weeds quickly and start talking about, and we will talk about Arizona's charitable tax credit and things like that. But there's a broader conversation here that I know you're all three passionate about. And that is, the idea of a purpose-driven culture. You certainly work for organizations or firms where you're committed to something greater than the bottom line, right? That's You don't get into this kind of work um, if you're just chasing dollars, certainly not on the uh, domestic and international services front, right? And so one of the things I know you're all interested in and committed to is having folks realize that the way in which they structure their own companies, their own organizations can create an environment where this is more than just a year-end phenomenon. This is more than just a, let's make some quick moves at the end of the year to move some money into this or that and try to maximize our benefits. You're speaking to something much bigger. Can we talk about this for a minute? Gail, what is a purpose-driven culture all about? And what should folks who don't work for nonprofits be thinking about in terms of their own organizations? Right. Well, th this is a an incredibly um, culture-changing topic, if you will. And you're absolutely right that uh, this type of culture in philanthropy occurs not just in December, but the entire year. Uh, as we can attest to, we our budgets are managed 12 months a year, not just four weeks. Um, but as far as a purpose-driven culture, why would a company want to do that? I mean, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, bottom line, ultimately, it will make a company more profitable. But some of the softer things that lead up to that is it creates and shifts a culture from individual contributors to a culture of a collaboration. If you're all working together on something that's a higher purpose, something that is bigger than, than what is on your desk, it creates teamwork. You're building tremendous workplace satisfaction. Employees have another reason to be with each other. We spend a lot of time with our work families, as I like to say. And so it's nice to have something very um, uh, driven, very purposeful to be there. And ultimately, this culture of collaboration creates kindness in the workplace. And as, as, as sappy as that sounds, these days that really does matter and it makes a huge difference. And it's sending a message to your employees that no matter where you are in your career, you have something, time, dollars, talent to contribute back to creating a better place. You know, it's it's fascinating because every every week in this studio, we're interviewing business leaders, business owners, everything from the solopreneur, the small business owner, all the way up to the SVP and the C-suite executives. And at some point in the conversation, we're always interested in how's it going? 
How's it going for you as a human being? How's it going for your people? What's it like to work in your company or work in your, you know, brick and mortar business? And and I know that the idea of service, of volunteerism, of kindness is something that everyone would agree with, but finding ways to actually make it operational, right, to the daily practices that lead to a culture on purpose, a culture on service, a culture, a mission-oriented culture, a conscious capitalistic kind of thing. Uh, There's a lot of different ways of talking about this. Those are sometimes uh, elusive when business owners or business leaders are trying to produce the results they need to produce in their organization. This is an area that I feel the nonprofit leaders could probably do a lot of um, almost peer education on to their counterparts working in for-profit enterprises. Jerry Royce, you've worked in the nonprofit sector for a long time. You've been with Esperanza now. Is this two years coming up on your second year? Uh, what have you learned in leading nonprofit teams that you would like your counterparts in the corporate or small business world to also? understand about how to relate to their people, how to nurture a culture of contribution, et cetera? I think that um, it go, it goes back a little bit to what Gail was saying about kindness. It People are our greatest assets, whether we're in a nonprofit environment or we're in a business environment. Uh, com- people work for people. Companies drive businesses, but they do it through people. And so our ability to connect and resonate with the people that work for us finding ways to help their life have purpose beyond showing up to work nine to five is what's really key. Some organizations, nonprofits, have built-in purpose. Other businesses need to create it, and there's a number of ways to do that. Sometimes you can tie the work directly to the product or the thing that you're producing. I worked for a chemical company that produced environmentally safe chemicals. Well, we were all purpose-driven, but we were also about making money. So that was key to our product line. If you don't have that, then you create purpose within the culture of the organization through volunteering. We at Esperanza and probably you also, Gail, do a lot of corporate volunteer teams. If they're in the healthcare industry, for instance, they might work to sort our medical supplies that go to Nicaragua. So it's tied to their mission. Uh, and the work that they do every day, which helps infiltrate the culture back home. You know, the business of the business of a purpose-driven culture uh, is our our business working in nonprofits is not really too different from a for-profit entity. And I think there's a lot of misconception around that. We have revenue goals. Right. We, you know, we have uh, human resource, you know, uh, topics and issues that come up. Um, and we have to be strategic about that. And so likewise, corporations that are looking to create this kind of endeavor should set goals around that and, and create a purpose and and figure out how they're going to do this in a strategic, smart way. Maybe it's they're setting a goal around a certain number of hours of volunteering. Maybe they're setting a fundraising goal how they are tying it back to their business in a more strategic way to let the public know what they are doing. It's a marketing tool, right? So it all, it's, it's all very intertwined. And I think we need to, to really envision that as uh, businesses and not profits working together rather than really separate missions. Andrea Klaus, 
I'm curious to know, you spoke about the, the stereotype of the, of the attorney and it's, it's clearly unfair because there are so many folks that I know, well, actually there are plenty that meet the stereotype, but there are so many that don't. And I'm curious about your own background. I mean, at what point does someone realize this is the kind of law they want to practice, that they're really kind of you know, victim focused, um, advocating for those without uh, representation. I mean, there there must be something early on that has someone say, no, I'm not going to be that kind of lawyer. I'm going to be this kind. What was your experience coming up through, you know, college and then through law school and so on? How did you pick this path? Well, so in law school, I experimented with, you know, I worked for the civil rights division um, with the attorney general's office, did that, loved it, uh, was Rule 38 certified to try cases at uh, for the Office of the Juvenile Public Advocate. Loved that. And what, that, what is Rule 38? Rule 38 is your. It's a certification from the Arizona Supreme Court that says that you're allowed to try cases in your third year of law school as long as you're su- supervised. Um, in law school, I also interned for an estate planning firm, and I thought, you know, I got to check that um, private box as far as experience goes, and I didn't expect to be drawn to it like I was. Um, but you know, we've got a we've got a a large sect of the the population that's vulnerable, and that is in need of advocacy. Um, and that is a need of protection from exploitation in a variety of manners. Um, I found that more rewarding than anything else that I did. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a, lot, a number of friends who have w- worked as public defenders, um, you know, really working inside of the criminal justice system to make sure that everyone is at least, you know, has fair and impartial treatment by the law, which sounds good again on paper, but in the practice and the micro details of things, even to the point of advocating for somebody in detention, awaiting their trial to get the kind of care that they need uh, for medical conditions or a pair of glasses so they can read, all these things that you know are rights they have available to them that they don't know how to claim. Um, certainly, there's an orientation towards trying to serve people wherever they are uh, and make sure that they are treated appropriately. Uh, we spoke a bit about culture in organizations. Can you speak about culture in your firm? Like, how does this topic of serving and being on purpose and mission driven play out uh, in the daily work you're doing with Bivens and Associates? Well, every attorney with the firm is uh, involved philanthropically. That you know, that's not a firm mandate, but. Uh, each of the attorneys there happens to serve in some way or another. For example, I'm on the board and have of uh, UMOM New Day Centers, um, have been on the board for six or seven years at this point. I've sat on the Honor Health um, Financial Health Advisory Board, have been involved with uh, SARC, the Southwest Autism Research and Resource Center, and their plan giving advisory board. Um, it, if you're practicing in the area of elder law, special needs planning, probate and and trust administration, you're somebody who wants to help. You 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 want to be one of the good guys. I I think that translates in everything that the firm does. Um, we encourage a, a culture of giving back, um, you, not just 
monetarily, uh, but through um, service, be that board, be that volunteer, um, and you know the money part of it's nice as well. So we all we all open our checkbook as well. Before we get into some of the specifics around ways folks can participate, can engage, can support, whether with dollars or with time or with a variety of other things, I, I'm I'm always curious to know when I'm dealing with leaders from the business or nonprofit world, what your what your day looks like when you're managing a complex organization, when you're dealing with a lot of issues, uh, what is the work? How do you spend your time and and this is one of the ways in which I think there's more in common, as Gail alluded, uh, between the nonprofit world and the corporate world than is often uh, recognized. Jerry, what's it like to lead an organization like Esperanza? How do you spend your time? What is the work? Well, for me, it's really about, again, it's about people, right? It's the people internal to our organization, the people we serve, and our donors and stakeholders. So my focus every day is being of service to those various groups. And often I get very involved with staff on pro- on the program side, so delivery of services, structure of our programs, of course, our marketing, our, our fundraising arm is a big part of it, calling donors, speaking with why they've been attracted to Esperanza, why they keep giving, and trying to make that personal connection. So most of my work is really all about people. Yeah. Jerry, how about from your perspective? I mean, you play a, a particular role within Jewish Family and Children's Service. Uh, can you describe your role, your work, and kind of how you see the organization from where you sit? Sure. Well, not too different from Jerry. I mean, people give to people, people help people. Um, but day to day, you know, my <laughs> the, the first thing that came to mind when you asked that question is that no day after day after day is ever alike in any way, shape, or form. It's all very different. It's always very exciting. Um, but as far as my my time and how I spend it, it's a combination of uh, with donors individually, one-on-one, sometimes with families, and actually uh, uh, often with uh, planned gifts or, or, or making future plans so that their giving can continue. Um, I also supervise the marketing of the organization, so making sure that our message gets out there, that it's on point, that we are highlighting specific programs at specific times of year um, for specific audiences and and making sure that that's optimized. Uh, I also uh, supervise our um, volunteer coordinator who does a wonderful job with both individuals and corporate groups. And then working in collaboration with uh, the folks that run the day-to-day programs at JFCS, and they often help me with uh, the cultivation of major gift opportunities to benefit those. There's definitely, I know from my own work in international nonprofits, there's got to be close connection between the operations, the program execution, and the marketing, the fundraising, the advocacy, uh, and the, the kind of internal leadership functions. Uh, there's there's a close collaboration required of it, and yet the skills are so different what people are doing in delivering programs and services um, and those that manage the delivery of those have a very different skill set from those who are like yourself meeting with major donors. How do you translate all of this internally to make sure everyone's working together and aligned and, and, and connected? Yeah. 
and that can be challenging, actually, and something that uh, that that I that I've seen change uh, at at JFCS recently is the understanding, even from the program delivery side, that our program directors also play a part in fundraising. You know, maybe mm-hmm. they they may not be making the direct asks, but they do play a part in that team that helps cultivate. Uh, when there is an interest, when the interest is specific, and they are the better messengers of the type of work we are doing, they are better positioned to tour that program site for that particular donor than I am, although I, I may be shepherding the ship, as you will. So everyone plays a part in in everything else that we do. Our, the lines are very blurred, um, but we each have our expertise, right? So we lead with our expertise and get the outside experts when we need it. So I, I like to kind of facilitate a, a very team-based approach with fundraising, even in marketing. I know you've had some of my colleagues here uh, who are not in, in the philanthropy department, but they have spent spoken specifically about their areas of expertise, but that they were serving in a marketing function, really. Absolutely. At that time. And everyone's a communicator, uh, whether that's their core skill set or not. And the flow of information from the field to, you know, creating campaigns, you know, right. fundraising or, or uh, the advocacy side as well. Uh, Andrea Klaus, what's the day in the life of, uh, of, of your practice? What, what do you find yourself doing? Uh, again, probably varies day to day. If we were to follow you around, make a documentary about this kind of thing, what would we see most often? I don't know if there there is a most often. I things generally come in waves. You know, I, my practice is pretty evenly divided between uh, post death probate work, trust administration, um, planning. Uh, one thing that I find incredibly war- rewarding about the practice is, is planning and having the philanthropic conversation with folks, uh, whether it's from a tax standpoint or it's pure philanthropy uh, with no major tax benefit to the, to the donor. Um, I'm meeting with clients to write plans. I'm meeting with family members if a plan has not been written and we're trying to uh, determine how to best care for somebody that's aging and in need of help. I'm meeting with uh, families who have uh, special needs children, siblings, um, meeting with people who have been rendered special needs after um, some sort of catastrophic injury and attempting to to preserve assets for those folks. So no day is the same. Yeah, it's a very dynamic environment. And again, I think the reason why I wanted to spend a little time on this is from the outside, there's a perception that, well, you know, the nonprofits are just kind of there doing their thing day in, day out. And I don't think that's the reality. I think it's a much more complex and fast changing uh, operating environment than most people realize. Let's talk about the specific ways that people can engage and support uh, the variety of different um, nonprofit or service organizations that are available here. I'd be interested in hearing specifically about, for example, let's start with you, Jerry, from from Esperanza. What are ways that people can support your organization? Can you categorize them? Yeah, so that really starts financial support. Um, we have actually donors that are all over the country. And so we, because of many of them support our international work. And so financially supporting the organization, either in a restricted gift or a general gift. So you specify where it goes or it just supports the organization in the way that we designate. Uh, you can also volunteer 
of course, and we have many volunteer opportunities from being in the classroom with the people that we serve, assisting with the participants, uh, to sorting medical supplies in the warehouse. Those supplies get shipped to Nicaragua, so that part of the process is really important. We also have special events, so we'll do uh, a Christmas. We just did a holiday party for the seniors in HUD housing, um, and uh, participating in that by giving gifts or your time. I think that you know, nonprofits, we, we use volunteers everywhere. So from the reception area all the way through the warehouse, um, if somebody comes with an earnest desire to be of service, we will absolutely put them to work. I, I spoke a few years ago at a, a conference of the Arizona Association for Community Health Centers. A lot of these um, medical providers were managing rural clinics and things in, in outlying areas of the state. Um, certainly, well, outlying areas outside of Maricopa County. Right. <laughs> and um, one of the issues that we were speaking about and I was working with them on was how to recruit top talent, mm. in this case, trained medical staff, whether doctors, nurse practitioners, med techs and assistants, et cetera, how to recruit them to work in what might be considered by some to be difficult conditions, very rural, very remote uh, less flashy, um, and and the only incentive that they had was the loan forgiveness program, whereby mm-hmm. if you serve a certain number of years, uh, a certain percentage uh, can be quite significant of your medical school debt mm-hmm. can get paid off. And one of the things that we were working on, uh, I brought my storytelling kind of culture perspective to this, was how to how to give people a sense that there's something happening that they could be a part of, that they could identify with, that they could find themselves happy serving in this capacity and really tell the story of what it's like to be in that place so that people who self-identify as, you know, I'm the kind of person who would love to do that sort of thing might be drawn um, whether or not it was financially the most, uh, you know, the, 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 the most rewarding, uh, that there were many other dimensions of that. When it comes to volunteers, how do you communicate to them what it's like to work alongside your staff and to deliver these programs? How do you, how do you share that, uh, that experience in a way that attracts people to come and work with you? So we tell stories. We talk about the senior in HUD housing. Um, her name is Julieta, who uh, grew up in a migrant farm community who lives on $300 a month, who was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, borderline type 1, who didn't understand the instructions from her doctor. She felt sort of lost. And our health educators went in and talked with her and put her on a um, a regimen for, for eating, helped her come up with some nutritious recipes for her favorite uh, chilarianos recipe or something that she culturally like to cook, but in a health, we taught her how to do it in a healthier way. So we tell stories and we tell the story about how her blood sugar level went from a very high level to lowered over an eight week period and the success that we had. And if you want to be a part of helping create that success, that's the story. Likewise, we tell stories of our international surgical missions, you know, and most of our doctors, our surgeons that come to us, they do, they, they, have a desire to be of service in another country. So they come to us because we put our, we allow them to put their own team together, which is rather unique. 
But if you walk into the hospital in Peru after driving six hours on a switchback road to get there and uh, there, you know, the there are dogs running around in the lobby and you go to do the, the pre-op uh, surgical screening and there's you know, 300 people in the waiting room who've been there for two days, and you get the feel for what it's like to be on the ground. And then you see the before and after pictures of what a surgical intervention does for somebody, just like Julieta, before and after, and how her life was transformed because we were present in it. Yeah. You know, you just reminded me of some of my experiences in remote parts of Africa and the Middle East, and there's something, there's something vivid and um, energizing about being in an environment where there's a lot at stake. You know, I think so many of us with the comforts of technology and, you know, our own status and our own privilege, we forget that life can be very enlivening uh, when it's a little more basic. Right. And Not when so the, comfy. <laughs> when the needs are more significant. Um, it can also be, in equal measure, heartwarming and heartbreaking mm-hmm. as you really confront the extent to which you haven't taken into account that a, a large part of humanity doesn't benefit in the way you do. And I'm not saying this is some kind of moral high horse or like, folks, you should know how good you have. I don't think that actually works, but the direct experience changes people. In a way that, you know, if I'm not in charge of recruiting for you <laughs> here, I'm thinking about how, like, I would love to tell the story of who you get to become and, and the kind of quality of life that you get to have when you change your environment and you go somewhere that you're not accustomed to and you and you serve. You're there for, you know, what whatever needs to be done in that right. place. Well, it opens your mind to and your heart to um to a world bigger than the one that you live in. That's how we started the conversation about being purpose-driven, right? It's, we are so in the what's in it for me mode in this country. And when you look at other countries like Peru, Nicaragua, Mozambique, it is, their sole focus is surviving. So what's in it for me isn't even in their dialogue. And so for us to sort of suspend that what's in it for me and just be purely about being for somebody else is hugely transforming. And it, you, once, you're, once you're in it, you want to go back over and over and over again. Yeah, I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but I really think we ought to, we ought to talk about the cost of self-absorption, oh. the cost of self-centeredness. <laughs> like it's there's a tendency to think, well, if I take care of myself first, then I'm winning. Right. But we don't look at the price tag of that in terms of our own mental health, our own physical health, our own well-being. I mean, anyway, I, well, <laughs> to be continued. That's but you are I'm passionate about. You are when you are taking care of others, you yes. are taking care of yourself. And when you're taking care of others, you are taking care of your family and your children. I exactly. mean, they're, they're, it's it's it's. As much self-fulfilling as it is, it's it's fulfilling others and those around you. I mean, we're in, we're in the holidays, and what better model of behavior to show your children than to give of yourself to others, not just this time of year, but all times of year. And in fact, um, Andrew, you reminded me, I, I was working with a family who set up a, a legacy plan for Jewish Family and Children's Service, and when they were finished— uh, Mom said to me, you know, the best part of this whole thing was when we got to tell our children mm. about what our plans were, because it's a guarantee that we will all die 
It's I know it's unpleasant, but we're we, getting out of here alive. It, it's it, <laughs> it will happen. And she was so fulfilled to be able to share this piece of paper, which, you know, I hopefully nothing will be acted on for decades, but it filled her up so much to be able to share that purpose with her children. Sure. And that's, I've got, I've got a a lot of clients that wind up there instilling philanthropy in the, the next generation. And, you know, we've all seen statistics and read that the generations coming up after all of ours are more philanthropically inclined. They're more purpose driven. They're, they're looking to even invest in companies with, with a, with a higher purpose. Um, And it's, I, I find that very rewarding too putting together something that that's you know honoring somebody's wishes and and benefiting a a cause that's greater than the than the dollar and similar to what you just uh, mentioned Gail you've probably had the same experience where you have people come to serve in your organization as a volunteer and they will later say I came to be of service to them but they really gave to me it's that it's that exchange of humanity that happens when I'm just selflessly serving another that's a unique experience. And same with teaching your children about philanthropy or investing in the community in which they live with that mentality of investment is super important. Yeah, absolutely. Gail Bear, why don't you tell us a little bit about the the ways folks can support the different categories, uh, the different opportunities at Jewish Family and Children's Service? Yeah, well, uh, obviously financially, uh, and again, that's not just in December, but but year round. And we've got uh, you know opportunities for folks to make a, a, a gift generally to JFCS, or they can designate it to a specific program they that may be of of their own personal interest, or maybe something they benefited from, uh, or a family member, such as behavioral health, our domestic violence services, our services to the Jewish community, uh, older adults. Uh, um, and our youth aging out of the foster care system. Uh, we also, I mentioned earlier, we do have a, a, a very nice um, legacy society, and that's that's been a, it's really an honor to be able to work with families to to set that up. Um, we also have volunteer programs, which offer both one-time uh, uh, episodic volunteering uh, for a special event um, for or for a specific program on a specific day, even administrative assistance. Uh, but also we've got ongoing volunteer programs, which um, require a bit more of a commitment, but uh, our volunteers have uh, served in the capacity of tutoring our youth um, that are in our um uh, programs to complete their high school education. Uh, many of our foster youth have been bounced around from school to school to school. And so we work uh, in our with our education coordinator to help them finish up. And sometimes they need some extra help in, in tutoring. We also have um, special volunteers for our memory cafe. And those folks help with our um, both caregivers and, and folks that are suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia. And it's a very nice uh, program for 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 both sets of that population. Um, we also have leadership programs. So other than our board of directors, we've got a, a young professional leadership program. And folks, it really is geared toward people between the ages of 25 to 45 to get a little bit more involved in the community. They've got a passion for philanthropy. They like the work that JFCS does. And 
behavioral health and social services and primary care. And we set them up with a big uh, day trip tour all around uh, Maricopa County to see all of our programs. They take a deep dive into one of them. We pair them with a board member for some mentorship. And they are also invited to our, our special events as well. And then we've got our special events, which includes things like our holiday program, which we just had similar to what you described, Jerry, as well as our annual Brighter Tomorrow Luncheon in, in January. I'm really struck by a couple of things as you're speaking, one of which is just how many different areas of life mm. are touched by the nonprofit organizations here in the Valley and literally everywhere. Uh, but everything, every dimension of human experience has some organization who's actively involved in some way or another supporting that. Um, and the opportunities are almost limitless. And, you know, the second thing was I, I used to teach at Berkeley and I used to tell my students that when you get out of here and you start getting on with the rest of whatever you're going to do, people are going to know what they're getting when they get you. And the and whether it's for a job or, not, you know, to, to, to apply for a scholarship or whatever. So the best thing you can do now is stop acting like a student and start looking for opportunities to get specific experience managing projects, managing people and managing money. Because those are the things that you can create language around on a resume or you know on your LinkedIn now or whatever, um, even if it's small. So I worked with five other people from my sorority to coordinate the such and such project, which raised thirteen hundred and eighty-seven dollars for such and such a cause over the span of six weeks. Now you're speaking the language of the world that wants to hire you, and you can have a lot of fun doing it as well. So as you were speaking to many of those different opportunities to be mentored by people to get engaged with things. I'm sitting here thinking that for young people who are looking for some way to to get experience, which ironically, most people won't give you it unless you have it, this kind of volunteer opportunities or leadership development uh, programs really provide something that could be useful for setting someone on the course of an entire career, whether it's with an organization like JFCS or not. Right. Well, I mean, it's a two-way street and you're right, whether it's with JFCS, JFCS or not. So this is um, this is our investment in these young up-and-comers in our community to to get them engaged, to ha get them to understand philanthropy. We we do spend a day with them, sort of. Uh, I call it the pulling behind the curtain, right? So they they get they really get more of an inside view into how the business of Jewish Family and Children's Service works. Because we, ha as I mentioned before, we've got revenues and expenses and HR and programs and philanthropy and fundraising and marketing. There's a lot that goes into that. Uh, but uh, as much as it's our investment in them, uh, you know, they're investing in in the community as well, not just our organization. So this it's it's really a two way street. And I think if we all sort of shift our our mindset and think of philanthropy as a community investment, not just giving money or parking money somewhere, that's really how we all all of our ships will rise up in creating a healthier community. I couldn't agree more. Andrea, as you work with individuals, uh, with businesses to help them design ways to take advantage of some of the charitable giving, some of the benefits, uh, let's talk about some of those specific things, uh, the Arizona Charitable Tax Credit and other ways that charitable giving can be designed when you're dealing with either an individual, a family, or a company. 
So uh, Arizona's got something that's relatively unique. There are other uh, states and jurisdictions that have something somewhat similar, but we've got a a dollar-for-dollar tax credit here that's tied directly to charitable giving. Um, The, you know, we're benefiting our community, absolutely. And, uh, you know, on top of that, you can knock some some dollars off of what is owed to the IRS. Um, as far as the uh, thresholds for that, um, the maximum credit for contributions to qualifying charitable organizations is $400 for single or head of household filers and then $800 for married filers. Okay, there's a second category there um, that's made to a qualifying foster care charitable organization. Okay, you can get a dollar-for-dollar dollar credit there, $500 for a single or head of household filer, or $1,000 for a, a married filer. Um, so Arizona has incentivized giving. Um, it's, it's terrific. Those two are also separate credits, so you, could, you can claim both. It's not one or the other. And how does someone go about taking advantage of those credits? Is it simply something of they need to check boxes on their state tax returns? They need to work with an attorney? Can you clarify how to take advantage of them? How do they pick the organization they want to make the contribution to, et cetera, et cetera? So on on that, there are actually the Arizona Department of Revenue has separate filing forms. Not really necessary to work with an attorney necessarily on that, Um, though I would suggest working with a qualified CPA and doing the homework because there are uh, only certain organizations that qualify for the credit. So the Arizona Department of Revenue actually has links that list qualifying organizations for either of those credits. So um, doing the homework either on their own to make sure that if this is strategic giving, I'm not just giving because I like the cause, but I'd like the credit as well. Got to make sure you're given to a qualified organization and uh, a CPA is a good resource for that. And I think it's important to say as well that both of those motivations are completely valid. Absolutely. I mean, the, the Absolutely. Giving is giving. Mm-hmm. And if if there's a tax credit available and you can avail yourself of that, sure. great. Uh, and if there's not, in the case of organizations that don't qualify for it f- for a variety of different reasons, either their programs are, are located other places or, you know, there's just different, there's different reasons, no less of an incentive to sure. give to those organizations. Are there tax benefits for businesses as well? And what can businesses do to support the nonprofits? So there are absolutely benefits for businesses for giving. We talked about some of them and they have to do, you know, with community profile and all of that um, workplace culture. Um, There's a a lot to be said for that, you know, not only from a a feel-good, do-good internal standpoint, but when you're giving back to the community, you're simultaneously raising a profile in the community. As far as the charitable tax credit and the foster um, care tax credit go, those those are credits available to individuals. So, Corporations are not able to um, to receive those particular credits. There are uh, certain Arizona credits that are available um, that are not those two that corporations can avail themselves of. For um, regular 501c3 giving, there's uh, 
corporate deductions that can be taken, not quite as high as individual deductions, um, but there's certainly tax benefit to doing so as well. Well, it's just great to be in in a state that is incentivizing uh, this kind of giving. Are there deadlines people need to be aware of uh, for applying or for making those financial contributions, whether or not they're specifically for the Arizona Charitable Tax Credit? Yes. So for the Arizona Charitable Tax Credit, the deadline is the uh, the honor before the 15th of the fourth month following the taxable year. Um, said differently and in plain English, you got to make your contribution honor before April 15th of the following year. So for instance, for uh, if I want credit for a 2019 tax year, I've got until April 15th, 2020 to give. So the re- similar as it is with some of the retirement accounts and things where you can you can fund the previous yep. year prior to the filing deadline. Correct. Yeah. And then um, for the rules are a little bit different for um, non-charitable tax credits. So those things that aren't designed are tied to rather uh, Arizona specifically. That's close of the taxable year, meaning those contributions need to be made by December 31st. Now, what about donations that support local schools? Do those qualify for this credit? Or they is that a different category? How does that work? That's a completely separate category. And it's, again, it's not a one or the other. You can claim credits simultaneously. So I can claim, uh, you know, what I've given to my child's school, um, as well as making the, the charitable tax credit to a qualifying organization, as well as making a, a contribution to uh, the for the foster care credit. Yeah. As we wrap up this conversation, you know, we live in a time of incredible divisiveness. Um, our our media landscape has grown increasingly siloed by us versus them kinds of mentalities. There's a, a lot of folks out there who are convinced that someone's out to get them and take away what's theirs, uh, rightly or wrongly, etc. Uh, well, we certainly don't play the the politics game here on the show. I am intrigued by your outlook on things. Uh, you you work in very service oriented roles. Your whole reason for being at some level is to make things better. And there's one point of view that says things are getting worse. Uh, I don't actually agree with that point of view. I think on a number of major indicators, life has never been better for human beings anywhere. And there's things we have to fix. My, my final question for you, and I'd just love to go around and, and get your thoughts on this. Uh, what's giving you hope now? What are you positive about as you look to the future? There's certainly a lot of challenges uh, both in the micro and the macro, uh, in things that we're dealing with in this country, in this state, as well as in this world. Um, Jerry, as you look forward, what is inspiring you and giving you hope for the future? I think I would have to say the generation that's coming. Uh, there is such um, passion and enthusiasm, as Andrea said earlier, there predisposed to being of service. They're cause-related. They care about what's going on in the world on a global stage. And they want things to be different. And uh, there there needs to be. So it encourages me to know that the generation that is coming after me uh, is has got a, a worldview in mind because I think that's going to be what will bring us together um, as, a, as human beings. Yeah. Andrea, as you look to the future, what What's lighting you up? What's giving you hope? What's getting you out of bed to keep doing the work you're doing? 
I, you know, I'm going to, at the risk of sounding unoriginal, I'm going to echo what Jerry just said. I'll, I'll tell you, I, I judged uh, speech and debate at a, at a high school level. And um, these, these kids, the, the generation that's coming, they, they care. And they, they, they're not putting themselves first. They're putting community first. They're community-oriented. Uh, they're service-oriented. Um, and I think that uh, future is is going to be okay in in their hands. I, I mean that sincerely. Yeah, I've got two young boys, five and seven, and they are passionate about the environment. And this is not something that we've tried to instill in them. We haven't, you know, Jen and I have not made this a thing that we focus on and push them into. They've really found their way to it themselves. And uh, the, the the oldest in particular gets so fired up about things. He can't wrap his head around why we don't take better care of them. But by the way, they were pretty news-free uh, households. So it's not like they're watching what's playing out uh, in kind of the national media about these issues. And, you know, um, Greta's you know, person of the year award and things like that. They have no idea that any of that's happening. They just know if they see somebody, you know, littering in the park, like they're viscerally upset about it. They want to do something about it. They're talking about how can we save the baby tigers, like the whole kind of thing. That's so great. yeah, I, I agree with great. you about that as well. Gail, what about you? As you look to the future, what is, what is your source of hope and inspiration? Well, I, as far as day to day, you know, at JFCS, I'm seeing thousands and th- you know over forty thousand lives healed every year, and that doesn't come from dust. That comes from people. People make that happen. Uh, you know, certainly people that are working on the ground, people that are giving, people that are giving of their time as well. That that all comes from humans. So that that in and of itself is is very moving, and I know that that is going. I have no reason to believe that's not going to continue because those numbers have increased every year. So that to me is a good sign that 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 things and the human spirit of wanting to lift everyone is is going to continue. And the you know the the young folks that that uh, that we've been working with and we've worked with even younger younger ones than that some some uh, young philanthropists of the high school age and and they seeing that they have this at top of mind that they are setting their own personal philanthropy budgets nowhere near where maybe these adults are, but it's the same process. And that they are thinking in this way at that age is really, it's just remarkable that they've been taught that from from people around them. Yeah. You know, I'm just, I'm remembering what you said earlier, Gail, about how a rising tide really does lift all boats and how when it comes to humanity, there's really just one boat. We're all in it. We're all in it together at the risk of ending uh, with a with a bumper sticker slogan <laughs> or a Sammy Hagar song from the 90s. You've got to give to live. Uh, and the, the, the experience of contributing is something that can make your own life richer for having done it. I want to thank the three of you for joining us here in the studio today. We'll link up to your organizations and your firm and give people all the details about how they can connect with what you're doing. But thank you very much for being here. Gail Baer, Vice President of Philanthropic Services with Jewish Family and Children's Service, Andrea Klaus, Attorney with Bivens and Associates, and Jerry Royce, President and CEO of Esperanza. Thanks for joining us here in the studio. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This is Dr. Adrian McIntyre. We'll see you next time on Valley Business Radio. Oh, 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 oh,